This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, August 3rd. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Adam Frisch stumps in Telluride. El Nino brings a drier summer, for now. County tracks its climate data. And a mountain weather forecast. The general elections are still over a year away, but candidates are already pounding the pavement, looking to drum up support. This week, Adam Frisch, Democratic candidate for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District, was in Telluride to meet with voters. There are a lot of people that are sick and tired of the status quo. And it's not about Team Red or Team Blue, it's about Team Colorado, uh, Team America, and that's what in Team Seriousness and, and Team Respect. And that's kind of what we've been running on. Frisch ran against Republican incumbent Representative Lauren Boebert in 2022. As a moderate Democrat, Frisch acknowledges it's a hard race to win. I mean, there's a lot of hard things about running. A, for Congress. B, in a district that's larger than the state of Pennsylvania. C, in a district that superficially I should be losing by 45,000 votes. But my pushback, the easy thing for me is that what I've thought as a dad and a husband and a small business owner is exactly what I've been telling the Democratic primary voters and exactly what I'm telling everyone when I was in the general as well. And so I only have one set of views and beliefs. I'm open-minded and we can change that, but I'm not telling different people different things. So it's very easy for me to share what I want. And so I'm being me. And I think that I'm the right person at the right time to see this change that's needed in, in, in Congress. He adds 2022 should have been a landslide for Bobert, and Frisch lost by only 546 votes. And so I'm not focused on DRU. I'm focused on, you know, do you want to move the ball forward in a bipartisan, thoughtful, respectful manner on behalf of the district? And that's what I'm focused on, and that's why we've done so well. When Frisch talks about driving around the district in a red Ford pickup, he adds... He says the issues he hears from voters the most can be boiled down into two groups. One is people want the circus to stop. They just want the antics to be over, the yelling and screaming, and it happens on all sides or both sides, if you will. The other, rural issues. It's Colorado water, Colorado energy, and Colorado jobs are remaining that's really, really important. And that goes, again, that goes across party, partisan lines. People, you know, there's a big, there's a growing, sadly, a rural-urban divide you see it in Washington, D.C., and you see it in the state capital as well here in Denver. They just feel like the state capital uh, and the national capital has just kind of given up on rural America. Ranchers, farmers, as it goes to even some of the more affluent communities like this one, the rural aspects of health care are just different than what the health care access is in Denver or, or even in Colorado Springs or Boulder. And Republicans get sick, Democrats get sick, unaffiliates get sick. So there's so many things to talk about that aren't highlighted on Twitter or on the cable news angertainment industry that so many people are sucked into. I'm just focused on what it's a little bit hokey, but this kitchen table stuff is truly what matters to a lot of people. And we're focused on those issues. At this point in the campaign cycle, Frisch is not technically going head to head with Bobert. Three other Democrats have already thrown their name in the ring to be the Democratic nominee. Debbie Burnett previously ran in 2022, but didn't qualify to be on the primary ballot. Anna Stout, the mayor from Grand Junction, and Adam Withrow, a contractor from Pueblo. Frisch says he takes his hat off to anyone running for office. But we're very, very focused and very, very confident that when November rolls around, um, 
will be on the ballot and we're going to become the winner. And so I'm not running against anyone. I'm just running um, for Colorado's third district and that's and represent the ranchers and the farmers and the families and the communities that are diverse. But common themes about, again, just wanting the circus to stop and want someone to focus on the job. And so um, I love democracy. More people should run if they want to run, but we like where we are um, from a financial standpoint and the trust and respect we've built up from a lot of people across our state. The 2024 general elections will take place on November 5th, 2024. Primary elections in Colorado will take place on June 25th. Even amidst the summer heat, it's not hard to recall the historic winter we had in the San Juans. As snowmelt has rushed down from the peaks, it's filled streams and reservoirs across Colorado. Even our largest reservoir, Blue Mesa, which was at uh, very low levels for the past two summers, saw a almost a full recovery because of that excellent snowpack season we had. That's Becky Bollinger, assistant state climatologist with the Colorado Climate Center. While the snowmelt has buoyed reservoir levels and led to a lush summer, in a typical year, we would see moisture and rainfall develop through the season. Here's Bollinger. Now, what happened in July was that we want to see the onset of the monsoon. We want to see more of those daily thunderstorms, uh, bringing in those higher dew points, regulating those temperatures a little so they're not getting as hot, and limiting the evaporative losses that's the moisture that the atmosphere wants to take out of the ground. Well, as many in southwest Colorado noticed, those monsoons never really showed up. And we are seeing that develop into basically short-term drought right now. Bollinger explains this disconnect between ample snow and a dry summer leads to a sort of split reality. Say you're looking out your window and you might see a lot of lush green and the rivers look good and the reservoirs look good and you might still see a little bit of snow remaining on the mountain peaks and that's that long-term situation and then you might notice oh my yard i have to water extra or my garden i have to water extra and the yellow of some of the weeds might be a little bit more yellow than they should be and all of those things are indicator that the short term is drying out. But for Colorado and much of the West, snowpack is the decisive factor in moisture levels. So even with a dry summer, the state has seen an above average amount of moisture this year. Going forward, however, a little monsoon could go a long way in lowering wildfire risk and keeping the picture positive. Despite some monsoon events rumbling through Telluride over the past week, the 14-day forecast does not promise more rain, and the summer could well remain dry, says Bollinger. For a longer-term outlook, Bollinger points to weather patterns defined by the Pacific Ocean. And so we're looking at the Pacific Ocean as it comes off the west coast of South America. And when we see that those ocean temperatures are warmer than average consistently, that means we're going into an El Nino pattern. According to current measurements, ocean temps are up, and we're currently experiencing an El Nino which is forecast to stick around. The El Nino tends to cause certain weather patterns. Those include, as we've seen, a drier summer in the southwest, followed by, good news, a wetter fall and winter. 
Here's Bollinger. It does mean that it would be more likely to have uh, above average precipitation conditions in the fall and winter. Now, is that a guarantee? No, unfortunately, it's not. Bollinger adds climate change makes the tricky business of predicting weather only more uncertain as long-term patterns change and collapse. Meanwhile, higher average temperatures will almost certainly make drought more frequent. And that's the thing that we need to kind of be reminded of and always be prepared for. Whatever else the new normal brings, Telluridians are certainly experiencing a weather year full of surprises. The scale of global warming is global, but it's also a local issue. In our area, the state of Colorado has its own climate goals, as do the towns of Telluride in Mountain Village, and then, of course, there's San Miguel County. We accept the resolution in February of this year, creating our own um, greenhouse gas reduction goals, which are just a little bit more stringent than the state's and our regional goals. That's Star Jameson, the Director of Natural Resources and Climate Resilience for the county. She came before the Board of County Commissioners last week to provide an update on county emissions projects. Jameson says the county is awaiting a critical tool for understanding its carbon footprint. The county has contracted EcoAction Partners, says Jameson. They compile all of our utilities And so they're putting it into a tool, which I put down here, the clear path tool. And it helps us um, figure out where we are in our targets and if we're going to meet them or not. EcoAction will release that tool to the county sometime this month. It will then know where to prioritize reduction efforts and be able to see its projects making a difference in emissions. Jameson says measuring the climate impact of the county and working to reduce it will be guided by a series of categories or metrics. The list is extensive. Some of the metrics that I've included down here, um, percentage of energy from renewable resources, number of renewable installations, tons of solid waste, our recycling rate, vehicle miles traveled, number of bike lanes that we um, increase, LED lights, and number of trees planted. The county is looking to employ other data-driven tools in its efforts. Jameson says a local land conservancy has been briefing her department on how to use codex mapping to envision and implement climate resilience. The mapping tool has the ability to highlight rare habitats, identify soil types, population densities, and much more. The idea, says Jameson, is to possibly put all these layers in the mapping to really understand our county. Commissioner Ann Brown, who assumed her position this June, was seeing the plan for the first time. She reacts in kind. It's massive. (laughs) Commissioner Lance Waring agrees. It's a good word. The first time that Star presented this to us, it was too big for our brains and she had to come (laughs) back and try again. (laughs) Once EcoAction completes the county's emission tracking tool, the Natural Resources Department can focus its climate projects and draw down county output. The low-line fire, which was sparked by a lightning strike last week and has swelled to almost 2,000 acres, is continuing to burn north of Gunnison. After a week of firefighting efforts, the outlook has improved as moisture and precipitation dampened the flames last night. 
but the efforts are not over. The fire is only 47% contained, and the Gunnison area experienced another day of dry conditions on Thursday. An evacuation order remains in place for areas surrounding the fire, and an air quality watch is in effect for Gunnison. In late July, a Paradox power station powered down. Now it's coming back online, slowly. A transformer at the San Miguel Power Association's Paradox Solar Array failed on July 24th. The failure brought the solar array offline while SMPA made repairs. Today, Thursday, SMPA was able to return the array to service, but only at partial capacity. The Paradox Array is the largest solar farm operated by SMPA, and it works under a community solar model. Some SMPA members bought into the array when it first went online, and those members receive a credit on their monthly bills depending on how much energy the array produces. During the outage, those members did not receive any credit. But no one lost power as a result of the outage. SMPA simply boosted other electricity sources. SMPA says the outage, though unfortunate, is part of the uncertainty which comes with solar power. The array's output varies with cloud cover, seasonal shifts, and, as users learned this month, equipment. While some users will take a hit in their pocketbook as a result of the failure, SMPA hopes to have the array fully returned to service by the end of next week. More money than ever before is being spent on lobbying in Colorado. The Colorado Sun reports more than $50 million went to lobbyists from July 1, 2022 to the end of June this year. That's an annual record, even when adjusted for inflation. Over that period, upwards of 700 lobbyists and lobbying firms worked to influence policy at the state house. Most of the work was focused on bills debated during this year's legislative session. XL Energy spent the most money on lobbying at more than $500,000. The power company is currently facing backlash over its rates and lawsuits over its role in the Marshall Fire. A popular stretch of the Snake River near the Tetons could become the first Wyoming River to charge boaters. The money would go towards improving infrastructure on the river. Local recreators say they're supportive, but have questions about the plan. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KHOL's Hannah Marsbach reports. $3 per person a day, or $40 annually. Those are the fees the Bridger Teton National Forest is currently proposing for boaters floating from Hoback to Alpine. But David Cernacek, the local Wild and Scenics River coordinator, says those fees are still very much up for debate. There's a lot of ways to do this. What we're putting out is something out in the middle of the room to take pokes at. About 20 community members at a public meeting this week reluctantly agreed the fees are necessary to address over $2 million in infrastructure needs around the river, like bathrooms and boat ramps. But they question how users are charged. Many want to see a per-vehicle fee instead of a per-user one. Zina Horman, a kayaker and former raft guide, wants to see a per-boat fee based on capacity and discounts for locals. I think the people who are coming from out of town and other states are the ones who have the potential to overwhelm the resource. With rangers checking for permits, Horman says there's an opportunity to educate these users on how to be safe on the river. 
Hannah Mersbach, KHL News. We go through a lot of shoes in the long walk of life, and old shoes often end up in the landfill. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGN News, Sam Fuqua took a look at the impact of shoes on the environment and ways to recycle and reuse them. At the end of each school year, Columbine Elementary in North Boulder hosts its annual Mile Marathon. Fifth grader Jose sums up the event after running his one-mile course around the neighborhood. It's awesome because you get a run, you get some exercise, and you can have fun. Just inside the school entrance, there are two very large boxes of used shoes, at least enough to fill a couple refrigerators. In conjunction with the run, families donate their old shoes, including some from Columbine graduate Ryan Miles. Where should we donate all my old shoes to here? Because other people need shoes, and when I have shoes that I don't need, they should go to the people that need them. Families look forward to it, and they plan. They save their shoes all school year, and then when this happens, they bring them in and donate them. Ryan's mom, Lisa Miles, is on the Columbine PTA. She coordinated the shoe drive. It's been going on many years, and every year they take the shoes to a different location. Last year, I think they went to Guatemala and to Afghan refugees, but this year they're going to Honduras. Boulder-based nonprofit One World Running distributes the shoes. It was founded by Michael Sandrock, a former professional runner. He says the idea came to him after running a marathon in Africa in the mid-1980s. One of the guys who beat me, his name was Isaac, he had those plastic blue sandals that they have. One of the straps was broken, he had bloody feet. I ran with him for about 20 miles and he took off and I followed his bloody footsteps all the way to the finish. And when I got done, he finished about an hour ahead of me and he waited. He waited there in the hot sun. He waited for me to finish. I was so touched. So Sandrock gave Isaac his shoes. Turned out he was the same size shoe as me. I was sponsored at the time. I gave him my pair of shoes and that's how One World Running started. The nonprofit collects and washes the shoes and distributes them to kids and adults around the world, as well as to shelters and Native American reservations here in the U.S. He doesn't have a specific number, but Sandrock estimates One World Running has distributed tens of thousands of used athletic shoes over almost four decades. That's a lot of shoes. But it's a tiny portion of the over 20 billion pairs made every year. Most of them are made in Asia. It's a resource-intensive and toxic process, according to Elizabeth Klein. They have a higher environmental impact in general than our clothing, simply because they are made out of so many different kinds of materials. Those materials can be toxic in their creation. Shoe factories can be a very harsh place to work because of those chemicals and that, you know, those glues and adhesives. Klein teaches fashion policy and sustainability at Columbia University. She's written two books on the topic, including The Conscious Closet. Much of her work focuses on the problems with what's called fast fashion, That's the mass production of clothing that is both cheap to make and to buy. And when fast fashion quickly wears out, it ends up in landfills. Same with shoes. Elizabeth Klein.
when a shoe is breaking down in a landfill, all of the glues and chemicals and EVA foam and plastics that it made up, it's made out of could potentially leach into the soil. Or it could be that the shoe simply doesn't break down. There are some shoe components that take hundreds, if not a thousand plus years to break down in landfills. And Klein says shoes are hard to recycle. We just don't have the systems in place to recycle shoes. It's very, very challenging to recycle a, a shoe because it, it really is just a, a sandwich, basically, of all of these different materials, many of them where there aren't even recycling solutions available for them yet. But many shoes can be repaired. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. George Perry's family has been fixing shoes in Boulder County since 1922, when his grandfather opened a shop in downtown Boulder. In 2017, when the landlord doubled his rent, the third-generation cobbler moved a half-hour drive west up Boulder Canyon, to the small mountain town of Nederland. He repairs all kinds of shoes here with the help of some durable old machines. We have the sanding machines, we have the press. This is an outsole stitcher. We got it in the 50s. We glue on a midsole. Perry says about half the shoes he repairs are dress shoes and the other half are hiking boots. Good shoes can be very expensive, and Perry says his customers are willing to invest in repairs so they can keep wearing them. There's a lot of good quality shoes people buy. You know, they could spend 300 to $500 on a pair of shoes. So to put $100 into them is definitely well worth it. They also fix other stuff like zippers and leather backpacks, and the customer base is big enough to support the three-person team at Perry's Shoes. That's George, his wife Becky, and one employee. But there used to be seven people on staff. Perry says the decline in his business is connected to broader changes in consumer behavior and in the industry. Because it's more of a throwaway society, I guess. Everything used to be stitched on. Now pretty much everything is molded, glued on. So there's just a different way of making shoes. If you can't afford to buy and maintain more expensive shoes, and you want to avoid cheap footwear, sustainable fashion expert Elizabeth Klein recommends doing what she does, shopping secondhand. And that's how I personally afford better quality shoes and shoes that would absolutely be out out of my budget or beyond reach. Klein says there's sometimes a misperception about the used shoe market. I know some of your listeners, their first instinct might be like, that sounds maybe unsanitary or a little gross. But what's kind of surprising is even within the secondhand market, you'll find things that, you know, someone bought something, put the shoes on at home and they didn't fit and they missed the return window. You can find a lot of shoes that are barely worn or even unworn. So whether it's repairing, reselling, or donating your old shoes, investing in and maintaining better quality shoes, or shopping secondhand, it all starts with being more conscious about what we put on our feet. For KGNU, I'm Sam Fuqua. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a mostly clear night tonight with a low near 40 degrees. Friday should be mostly sunny with a high near 80 and wind picking up in the afternoon. Friday night should bring clear skies with a low near 45 degrees. 
Then Saturday, expect sun and a high around 80, followed by a clear night with a low near 45 degrees. This has been the news for Thursday, August 3rd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.